So we are in Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 13, 13 through 17. Mark writes, Once again Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we thank you for the privilege of studying your word, the privilege of sharing together in worship. Uh, We thank you, Lord, for all that you do for us. We thank you especially for the salvation that you provided through our Lord Jesus Christ and his death on Calvary's cross. Thank you for his willingness to take in his innocent, sinless body our sin, to become our substitute, to take our death. But we thank you that death could not hold him and he is alive from the dead. We thank you that we can be a part of your family. We thank you that we can go from death to life that we can have eternal life, abundance of living right now with you and life with you forever. Lord, guide us in the study. Help us to see the great virtues of this man, Matthew, who was once an outcast and now a part of your family and a part of the family that we will be with forever in eternity. Guide us, Lord, in our study. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a famous saying, it's attributed to Mark Twain, it's attributed to uh, other uh, of the founders, it's uh, attributed to Ben Franklin, and uh, it goes like this, nothing is certain except death and taxes. Now, actually, Ben Franklin wrote in a letter to to, uh, someone, our new constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. That's thought to be the original uh, saying. Some clever person said, but at least death doesn't get worse every time Congress is in session. (laughs) And I thought that was a great statement. Uh, We are studying this morning, and I thought it would be appropriate to study Matthew and, of course, surnamed Levi, Uh, who was a tax collector. And once again, what we see in this passage, verses chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, we see how Jesus reaches out to the outcast, how he reaches out to the rejected and the scorned. And again, we see Jesus' compassion and his mercy and his love. And again, we see the opposition of the religious leaders to Jesus and his ministry Again, we see the heartlessness of the religious leaders, those who should have, above all, 
understood God's love, above all understood God's mercy, became the harshest of all people. And I think that you and I have to be concerned about that. Be concerned that religious people can be harsh. Religious people can be the harshest of people and the most critical of people. And I think we need to be concerned about that and realize that our hearts need to be in tune with God's heart. Our hearts need to be in tune with God's heart. God who is merciful. And so we're going to see a lot of layers as, as we have many times in our study of Mark so far. Many layers to this particular passage of scripture. Uh, there's someone who wrote a tongue-in-cheek uh, description by a tax collector of his job, a first century tax collector. Let me share. This is tongue-in-cheek. I don't care what you think. It's just a job. I work for the IRS Imperial Revenue Service. That's right. I collect taxes. I just happen to like money a lot, so it's a good job for me. Everyone hates me, but I think they're just jealous. I have a big house and a boat, new cars, the latest electronics, the works. People tell me I should give some of my money away, but I just can't. I like it too much. I love to just sit around and count it. It just feels good between your fingers. You know, people also say that when I collect taxes, I take a little for myself. Now, that's not true. Well, not very true. Okay, maybe I've done it once or twice or a few times, but they had to pay anyway, so it didn't make a difference to them. Right? Right? Well, that's kind of a tongue-in-cheek description of tax collectors. Tax collectors were hated for many reasons, and we're going to talk about uh, tax collectors uh, and why they were hated, but mainly they were seen as an arm of the Roman government. They were seen, Jewish tax collectors, as with Matthew or Levi, if you want to call him that, uh, they were seen as an arm of the Roman government. On a serious note, one writer said when Matthew listed the names of the 12 apostles in his Gospel of Matthew, he also mentioned his former occupation, tax collector. This meant that Matthew had formally gathered revenues from his own Jewish countrymen and turned them over to the hated Roman government. Since the standard practice of tax collectors was to overcharge people and pocket the excess, we can safely assume that Matthew was rich and despised. Branded a traitor and treated like a leper, Matthew was an unlikely disciple. Then Jesus came along. Not only did Jesus change his life, but he also chose Matthew to be one of his most trusted followers. It may seem odd for God to use a man with a shady past, to advance his kingdom. And when I read that statement, I thought that's interesting because what of us, who of us, does not have a shady past? Who of us does not have a past in which we were walking apart from God, we were walking away from God, and we needed to go toward God, we needed to embrace his son, Jesus Christ, 
So we're not much different, I believe, from Matthew. The writer went on to say the story of Matthew is an encouraging one. It reminds us that God is in control of the affairs of, his li- of our lives. He has put together each one of us with an individual personality, special abilities, and, a unique, and unique experiences. And then the writer asked of us a question. Have you surrendered your life, your past, your present, your future to God? Do so today and watch him do some amazing things. God can use your training and skills to make a difference for his kingdom. It's interesting interesting to me as we see the people that Jesus chose to be his disciples. And by this time in the book of of Mark, we're beginning to see the, the word disciple more and more, and we'll see it a lot more by the end of the book as we see that there is this group of people that Jesus selected out of all the other people to be his disciples. And it's interesting to see how disparate they are, how different they are, the different backgrounds they came from. How they ever came together is amazing. It's a story of grace by itself, how all of these disciples ever came together to be Jesus' followers and his disciples. And so God has has done something in your life. He's given you training along the way. He's given you skills, and he's given me skills along the way, and he desires to use those. So there's nothing, as you look back at your life, as I look back at my life, there's nothing that's just random. Random events, that, things that seem random, God is putting together to make each of us a unique personality, to make each of us a, with unique skills and unique gifts and a unique temperament to be used of him. And that's what we see not only in Matthew, we see that in all of the disciples, how Jesus took these people and they had grown up with unique skills and unique gifts and he used them for his kingdom. They used them for his, he used them for his glory. And I think we need to ask, have we surrendered ourselves? Matthew apparently was very rich as most tax collectors were in that day because most tax collectors were corrupt in that day. And Matthew was very rich. But the moment Jesus says to Matthew, follow me, what do you think Matthew did? Matthew immediately left everything behind. He immediately left everything behind and he followed Jesus. There was no turning back for Matthew, and we're going to look at that in just a few moments. There was no turning back for Matthew. If you think about it, and I don't, I'm not sure who the writer was who raised this point, but I thought it was a tremendous point. As you think about it, the disciples that are chosen so far in the book of Mark are all what? What was their occupation? Fishermen. All of the disciples chosen up to this point were fishermen who, when Jesus called them to follow him, they did. They left their boats, they left their fish. But you know what? They could always go back to fishing if they decided it was too hard, if they decided they wanted to go back. Matthew didn't have that luxury. As the writer pointed out, 
Matthew wouldn't be able to go back because the moment a tax collector left his post, there were 25 more who were ready to take it. Uniquely, at least so far in the disciples, Matthew was somebody who could not turn back or who would not turn back. He had nothing to turn back to, whereas the others could go back to their boats. And sometimes we see them do that. They go back to their boats and they go back to fishing. Once, Ma once Matthew responded to Jesus' call upon his life, there was no turning back. There was no turning back. Do you ever feel like turning back? Do you ever feel like this is too hard? Do you ever feel like, you know, I didn't think it was going to turn out like this. Somebody promised me that if I trusted Jesus as my Savior, life would be just peachy keen. And I haven't found it that way. I found it difficult. I found challenges that I didn't expect to be there. Well, for Matthew, there was no turning back. The others might, but for Matthew, there was no turning back. And so I find so much about Matthew that is a challenge to my own life. I find so much in this passage that I hope I see myself in Jesus and not in the Pharisees when it comes to mercy and grace and love. So that's some of what we're looking at this morning. I like what one writer said. He's, a, he's a, a, an early writer. He said, we ought never to despair entirely of anyone's salvation when we read this passage of Scripture. Isn't that good? We should never despair entirely of anyone's salvation when we read this passage of Scripture. I want you to think about this. Who is it that you have been praying for for many years now to come to Christ? Who is it you've been praying for many years now to come to Christ and they don't seem any closer today than they did when you started praying for them? I don't want you to raise your hand, but I want you to think about that. Who is it that you've been praying for? Have you despaired that they'll ever come to Christ? Have you despaired that maybe they're so far away from him that they won't come to him? Matthew is your example of how a person who's far away can ultimately come to Christ. Matthew encourages us because, as the writer said, we can never despair entirely of anyone's salvation when we read this passage of Scripture. So, Whose salvation do you despair of? Who have you been praying for for many years and they seem no closer to God? Let me encourage you on the basis of what we learn here about Matthew. Let me encourage you, don't give up. Don't turn back. Don't stop praying. But continue to pray for them. Well, that's a, a little bit of the introduction for Matthew, we read in verse 13, uh, and by the way, the way the outline goes here, we have Matthew's call in verses 13 and 14. Matthew's call in verses 13 and 14. And we have Matthew's celebration in verses 15 to 17. His call in 13 and 14, and his celebration in verses 15 to 17. 
Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake, and that would be the Sea of Galilee. Remember, Capernaum was their center of operations at that time uh, in the area of Galilee, and that was at the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so, no doubt, they are in Capernaum. Uh, this, this lake mentioned here is the Sea of Galilee. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. Now, the rabbinic fashion of that day is that he probably taught them as he walked along and they would follow him. That was the rabbinic, rabbinic fashion of the day. The rabbi would walk along the way, his followers would follow him, and he would teach as he went. And that's what we see here. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, we read, uh, as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Now, Levi, as we said a few moments ago, was rich, but he gave up all of his wealth to follow Christ. He had a revolution in his heart. He was totally changed by the Savior. Levi is also called Matthew, as we've mentioned already. He's the writer of the first gospel. Capernaum was home base for the disciples at this time. Levi, Matthew was a customs, uh, excuse me, Capernaum was a customs port on the caravan route between Damascus and the Mediterranean Sea. So therefore, there would be import and export fees that needed to be collected. Matthew, as a tax collector, would not only collect those fees, but as well, he would collect taxes for Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, under the Romans. That's what made Matthew a hated man among the Jews. That's what made Matthew a hated man among the Jews. He was seen as an agent of the Roman government, the hated Roman government. He would collect taxes such as income taxes, land taxes, custom and excise taxes. He would collect tolls as well for bridges and roads. Tax collectors were despised. They paid a fee for the right to collect taxes for a five-year term. Often, what they did involved fraudulent practices. They often collected more money than necessary, and they would pocket the difference. John the Baptist talks about tax collectors in Luke chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Secondly, they collected money to support foreign rulers, the foreign rulers, the Romans, over that area at that time. They were despised also because they were seen as those who betrayed the nation for material gain. They were seen as those who betrayed the nation for material gain. Matthew was an unlikely candidate, an unlikely candidate to be the disciple of one who would be the Messiah. 
But once again, we see Jesus' compassion. Once again, we see his love. Once again, we see him reaching out to people that other people would not touch in any way, shape, or form, that they would not have a relationship with in any way, shape, or form. Jesus reaches out to him. As Jesus touched an unclean leper, as Jesus had the authority to forgive sin, Jesus is now calling a hated tax collector to be one of his disciples. Levi was a man without hope. He was considered unclean. He was considered unfit for Jewish society, for fellowship. When Jesus calls Matthew with his gracious call, Luke chapter 5, verse 28, the parallel passage of Matthew's call tells us he left everything and followed him. Isn't that amazing? Can you think about what Matthew would have been like? A person who would be a representative of the Romans, a person who would steal from others and not think twice about it, a person like that encountered Jesus Christ and that quickly, he gave up everything. He gave up everything. He left it behind. And he got up and he followed Jesus Christ. He left everything. As I said a moment ago, others could return to their fishing, but there was little possibility of Matthew returning to his occupation some who viewed it as a way to get rich quick would snap it up immediately when Matthew abandoned it. Others could return to their fishing, but Matthew's decision was final. There was no turning back for Matthew. There should be no turning back for us. Once we put our hand to the plow, as Jesus said, we need to go forward. There's no turning back. Well, we see here in verse 15 that Matthew throws a party. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. That means Jesus. Many followed Jesus. There were a growing number of disciples is what Mark is talking about here by this time. So what Matthew does, uh, we're, told, we're told in uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 29, the parallel passage, we're told that Levi held or threw a great banquet. And who do you think he invited? His friends. Who would his friends be? Come on, folks. They'd be tax collectors. Sinners according to the Pharisees. Sinners according to the religious leaders. And Jesus goes to a banquet, a party, with all of these tax collectors. Now I'm imagining things going something like this. Matthew wanted to tell his friends about the change in his life. Did you tell somebody about the change in your life when you trusted Christ? I hope that if you didn't at that time, that you have since then, Tell somebody about the change that has come into your life because you know the Savior. 
you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. I imagine Matthew wanted to reach out to his friends, his friends who were considered scum by the religious leaders, his friends who were considered scum because of what they did. And I imagine he was excited about the idea of introducing them. I imagine he wanted to tell them about how you can pass from death to life by putting your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. I imagine he wanted to tell them how you could train, tra uh, trade eternal death for eternal life. What, what a trade, right? We trade our sin for his righteousness. We are headed to an eternity separated from God. We put our trust in Jesus Christ and we become a part of his family and we are given eternal life and we know that we will be with him eternally. I imagine Matthew wanted to share that. Did you want to share that when you came to faith in Christ? Did you want to share that when you came to faith in Christ? It seemed so early in the early days, didn't it? It seemed so early to witness in the early days when we first became a believers and we're in the blush of that first love. I imagine Matthew wanted to reach his friends for the gospel. He wanted to tell them you could pass from death to life. He wanted to tell them that there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, there are a lot of people who want to condemn us. We're going to see some who wanted to condemn Jesus in this passage because he ate with sinners. Because he ate with sinners. There are a lot of people that wanted to condemn, but there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are who are in Christ Jesus. I imagine that he wanted to share all those things. So you know the first thing that Matthew did is he enrolled in an evangelism course. <laughs> Isn't that what we do? We enroll in an evangelism course. And then we get our four spiritual laws and we make sure we order enough. We learn the bridge illustration. We learn the Roman road, the four spiritual laws. We're ready. That's how we prepare to share our faith with those who are important to us. But what did Matthew do? He held a banquet, which apparently was a little rowdy because the religious leaders were really angry. He held a banquet. Now, I like what one writer said. Christians are capable of cooking up some elaborate evangelism programs. We bring in celebrity speakers and blanket our communities with tracts. I've shared with you when I was in seminary, we all had to, every, every one of the stu students had to take an evangelism course, and we were required in the course to learn to use one of those tracks. And we were required in the course in order to get credit for it. And of course, that's all accounted at seminary, right? Getting credit for every course. So you could graduate and get out of there and minister. And uh, I've shared with you, many of you before who've been here a long time, we had to hand out so many of those tracks during the course of the semester and there was a Minyard's grocery store. Anybody here ever heard of Minyard's grocery store? If you were ever in Dallas, you've heard of Minyard's grocery store. 
Well, behind the seminary, there was a small Minyard's grocery store. Those poor cashiers were put upon by us seminary students. We would go in there, and we had to give out our 10 or 20 tracks, however many tracks it was. And so, you know, one by one, we'd be in Minyard's, and we'd buy a pack of gum or something, and say, oh, by the way, I'd like to give you something to the cashier and hand them the track. And I'll never forget the cashier took the track that I handed her and tossed it onto the shelf behind her and said, I'll just put it with the others. <laughs> how, how sad is that? How sad is that? As the writer said, Christians are capable of cooking up some elaborate evangelism programs. We bring in our celebrity speakers, blanket our communities with tracks, put up billboards, plaster bumper stickers on our cars. We televise our church services and hold up signs at, at athletic events. I find that interesting too. Did you notice that the NFL doesn't allow that anymore? How many of you remember the days, not a long time ago, when there would be a section of Christians in the stadium at an NFL televised game, and when uh, they, they would position themselves, for instance, for the after the, the extra point kick, uh, they'd position themselves, and all of a sudden they'd unfurl a, a big banner that, that had 1 Corinthians uh, 6.19. And I always thought that was kind of, and then the NFL banned that. You can't do that anymore. You can't witness in the NFL. But at any rate, that's a whole other story. Uh, I always thought that was kind of funny because I was thinking to myself, what does the average non-Christian think when they see that banner unfurled? I thought, what kind of testimony is that? I, I, so I'm imagining the average NFL watcher sitting in his Barca lounger, and uh, he's, he's uh, saying, hey, hey, Mabel, his wife, uh, bring me another beer. And he's sitting there, he's watching, and all of a sudden... This banner is unfurled, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. And I'm imagining, he says, Mabel, along with that beer, bring me my Bible. I want to look up this passage. You know, what the average non-Christian was saying, seeing was Roman numeral 1, capital C, small case O, small case R, period, number 6, Colon, one nine. I always thought, what kind of witness is that? Is that the way, is that what, is that what we're to do? Matthew didn't do that. He threw a party. He threw a party for his non-Christian friends. Well, as the writer said, God can and do, does use such methods to draw people to himself. But perhaps, the writer says, we've overlooked a more natural strategy for reaching out to the spiritually needy, creating non-threatening situations in which our non-Christian friends and neighbors can see what Christ is really like. Because, you know, the way they're going to see what Christ is like is because they're going to see him in you and me. That's how they're going to know what Christ is like. The writer goes on to say that's what Matthew the tax collector did. After he decided to follow Jesus, he threw a party. 
He invited all his wild tax collector buddies and he made sure Jesus and his disciples showed up. Instead of bringing his friends into a religious setting where they would be uncomfortable, Matthew brought the good news into their world. Though these tax collectors and sinners were turned off by religion, they were attracted to and intrigued by Jesus. Now, there's nothing wrong with programs. There's nothing wrong with us taking an evangelism course. But if it doesn't come to fruition in in the most natural way, sharing our lives with those around us, those people who know us and see us and hear us speak, if it doesn't eventuate in that, what are we doing? Matthew threw a party. And, you know, I marvel at that because I'm not good. I'm the guy that takes the course. I'm the guy that learns how to use the bridge illustration. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. But I'm not the guy like Matthew that throws the party. And I wish I were like him. I wish I were like him. So he throws a celebration. There was a great banquet according to Luke chapter 5 and verse 29. Again, Levi must have been wealthy. He throws the dinner, probably as a combination farewell dinner, and also wanting to introduce his friends to his Savior. While Jesus was having dinner in verse 15 at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Sinners was a term that religious people used for the common people. Sinner was a term that religious people used for the common people. Sinners those who were not religious like them were regarded contemptuously by the Pharisees. They had contempt for the people around them. You and I can't reach the people around us if we have contempt for them. Now, granted, there are a lot of contemptible things going on in our culture these days. Sad things, disappointing things, anger-inducing things, Going in, going on in our culture. But if we are contemptuous of people, if we regard people with contempt, we will not reach them for Jesus Christ. We will not reach them for Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that we should become accommodating of sin. I am not saying that at all. I hope you understand that. But to be contemptuous. will put a block between us and them. These so-called sinners were untaught in the law. They did not observe rigid pharisaical traditions and standards. The Pharisees were not to have fellowship with them, were not to talk to them, were not to journey with them, were not to do business with them, were not to marry them, they were not to accept hospitality from them, and they were not supposed to give hospitality to them. 
Who were they reaching? Who were they reaching? Verse 16, there's controversy. There's always controversy, by the way, if you don't do things the way religious people think you should. That happens in churches. There's always controversy. There's always conflict. We read, when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked this disciples, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because they're the needy ones. Is it, is it that hard? Is it that hard? Verse 17, on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have, called, I have come to call, not to call the righteous, but sinners. And he's saying that tongue in cheek. He's saying those who consider themselves righteous, but are not. I haven't come for them. They're self-righteous. I've come for those who know they are needy. Who know they are needy. In the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 9, verses 12 and 13, Matthew adds that Jesus said, quoted Hosea 6, 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. How did the religious leaders so easily miss that? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Well, the Pharisees were the most influential party in Palestine. Eating a meal together denoted intimate fellowship, intimate friendship. They it implied the acceptance of a person. That's the genesis, for instance, of fellowship meals. That's the genesis of the Lord's Supper. That interaction. They were critical of Jesus for not being a separatist. They were critical of Jesus for not observing their distinction between the righteous and sinners. He was, in their eyes, setting a bad example for a holy man. If you're a holy man, you don't do that. You don't reach out to sinners in their way of thinking. Who is unworthy of us reaching out to? I don't know. You tell me. Who is it that we should write off? Who is it that we should believe we are better than. Who is it? I've often said that we are not better than non-Christians. We are better off than non-Christians. Because you and I have eternal life. You and I are a part of the family of God and the family of God and the church. You and I are a part of all that. We have eternal life. We are better off, but we're not better than. Well, they said he's setting a bad example. He's welcoming sinners into his circle. He should have disassociated himself from them. Oh, well, how are they going to be saved?
If they're going to come to God, they've got to clean themselves up. That's reformation. I mean renovation, excuse me, not reformation. Jesus' mission was to regenerate people, not to reform them. Jesus' mission was to regenerate people, not to reform them. The reformation in their lives would come once they're regenerated and once they are in relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus meant that the sinners who followed him in faith were made righteous while the self-righteous who rejected him remained sinners. Another writer said that a merciful attitude toward the spiritual needy, spiritually needy is, for better, is far better than the mere formality of religious duties without concern for others. In other words, we can go through the motions, folks. As believers in Christ, we can go through the motions. We know how to act right. And when we don't act that way, our brothers and sisters in Christ will nudge us a little bit to act right. If we're not sinning, we don't need the nudge. Well, another writer said, the Pharisees always brought the right sacrifice but they were totally lacking in compassion towards sinners. When mercy is lacking, religious formalities mean nothing, and they are meaningless. Tongue-in-cheek, one of the commentators wrote these words. Jesus, in effect, says, if you have no need of God's mercy, then excuse me, I'd like to get on with my work. Well, there's so much more that could be said. There's a whole section I didn't get to, but that's okay. We got the main points. I want to close with this. It's the favorite lines of writer C.T. Studd who said this, Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for Jesus' wonderful, tender compassion and love. Thank you for his, the way he showed mercy. Not that we overlook sin, Lord, we know that. <laughs> but we realize that those who are in the grip of Satan need to hear the gospel and need to be freed from that grip. And by faith they can be. Help us to look at the people around us with mercy and not contempt. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.